0: If you have a seat, that'd be great. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, we're going to need, you're going to need one today and every Sunday. So if you ever uh, forget one, they're, they're back there. We should have them on the screen as well. We're going to be uh, getting right to work, actually, in the book of James. We've been going through, and we'll go through the... Uh, I'm Sam, by the way. Sorry if uh, for some of you don't know me. Um, but we're going through the book of James, and there's a study guide that looks like we, we use them all up, uh, and it goes through... The book with questions and commentary, and if you would like one and don't have one, then just email me, Sam at Damascus Road, and uh, I will uh, be sure to get you one. We're going to start in James, though, chapter 1, the last couple verses of chapter 1. And uh, it's been, gosh, I don't know, six or seven weeks, just in chapter 1, which is a pretty foundational chapter to the whole letter. And so we go through a little bit slower, and after chapter 1, we'll do a little bit of larger chunks uh, but this is kind of the turning point in the book. These verses are probably some of the most famous verses out of this letter, the most commonly quoted out of this letter. And so uh, they kind of establish, uh, or end, I should say, his introduction to where he's going with the rest of the letter. And it is a convicting, powerful, practical book. And much like whenever you read 1 John, if you read James as an assessment of How you are doing, if you are a believer, it will floor you at times, offend you at times, encourage you at times, but you cannot leave it without being moved in some way. So, we're going to begin in verse 22 of James chapter 1 and then read the remainder. James writes this, "...but be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world now what i've been preaching and what i'm going to proclaim today is nothing new this is not some new idea that we're going to talk about we've called the study retro kind of retroface faith and Apart from our faith, just in our lives, it feels like we're always looking for the next new thing to make our life easier, more convenient, or just all around better. Nothing wrong with that. That's just culturally who we are. But that culture seems to kind of bleed into our faith a little bit. And as we talk about our faith, we also oftentimes look ahead or to the future or to something different or to something new to try and spark our faith. And my question is not whether we should be looking forward, but whether we should be looking backward, specifically a couple thousand years. We kind of had a 50's theme and it was like, well, faith from the 50's A.D. about where James wrote this letter. But it seems to be the tendency of a lot of Christians... And I don't assume that everyone is a believer here, but I know this for myself, that we're very quick to dismiss what we might call the, the fuddy-duddy old stuff of faith, the stuff that we might consider old-fashioned. Even specific heart attitudes, like how we approach the world, even particular practices, we are often quick to dismiss them as irrelevant today. That was what they used to do. That's not necessarily what we do now. We need something new and progressive. And it's clear, it's obvious to everyone, that this tendency in in churches and in Christians' lives has resulted in a lot of people, believer or not, who are very confused about who Jesus is, what the church is, what this faith, is uh, and what it overall means to be a Christian. And I, I was reminded, I used to be a high school teacher. I taught high school for 10 years here at Marysville Pilchuck High. Go Tomahawks, you're going to kick tail in football. Um, and when I first started teaching... Um, I was—I had visions of grandeur, like it was. If you ever seen Dead Poets Society, like it was going to be, you know, Mr. Keating, and I would say stuff, and they would be like, "Yes, Almighty One, you're wonderful." And it's not really how it works out, but I enjoyed it immensely. I would love to still do it, actually. And one thing I began to recognize immediately as I read their papers, because what I would tend to do was I'd always—I had smart kids and and not so smart kids and honors kids and. Not-so-honors kids, and they would turn in papers, and the first paper they wrote, I would butcher. It looked like I had written more than they did. And I'd always use red pen, because the psychologist said never use red pen. Use green pen for their psyche. So I'm like, red pen. So I'd use huge red pen all over, and I would just butcher their paper, and I would give them a very low grade. I shouldn't say that. I'd give them a grade that matched what their writing was. Not what they were going to get in the class. It was hard for them to dismiss that, because if they wrote an A paper, they thought they'd get an A in the class. It wasn't always the case. Just because you got an F on the paper didn't mean you got an F in the class. But I would butcher it, and one of the things that always came up was the kids didn't know how to spell. These are juniors in high school, okay, soon to be seniors, and could vote for the next president, and they can't spell. And they didn't think it was that big a deal, but I think spelling is a huge deal. Because if you misspell particular words, what you're trying to say or communicate can be received very differently. And so a couple words that always spelled definitely wrong, and I think adults still can't spell definitely wrong right today. It's always spelled defiantly. It's like, no, that's different. Being defiant and being definite are close, but not quite the same. College was always spelled collage. Very different, you know. So I began spelling tests for juniors in high school, like... Here are ten words you get every week, and you will spell the words. And then I'd give them the new ten words, and they had, like, huge vocabulary tests. And for the kids, it was, I don't know how much they told kids they are having spelling tests, but for the, it was very helpful for them. But then, whisperings through the school grapevine, which typically happens at schools, was Ford's giving spelling tests. And these weren't whisperings from kids, these were from teachers. Like, quotes of, didn't these stop back in, like, third grade? And my comment was, that's what it looks like, because they couldn't spell. And so I was very much about spelling tests, and they their spelling improved. But we are so quick to dismiss something that we go, well, that's just a little thing that we used to do. But it's so foundational to just how we communicate. If you can't spell, written-wise, you can't communicate. You can try, but I would read stuff and go, what does this mean? Like, well, this... This word right here is misspelled. Well, it meant, I meant this. What if I didn't know that you meant that? You could be completely misunderstood. And so some of the foundational things I find in our faith have been dismissed. as old-fashioned. We don't need anymore. And I wonder if those are the things that actually are supposed to be most important to us, most uh, focused on. And it seems like in these foundational kind of faith pieces that today's Christians, specifically Christian authors, have added to the confusion. If you just do a real quick summary uh, of of typical Christian titles about like faith, you'll find that it's not really... um, There's almost this expression of crisis. Like the Christian church, the Christian faith is in big trouble. And they write titles like... Here's some examples. These are from believers. Titles like Pagan Christianity... UnChristian, they like Jesus but not the church or the Gospel according to fill in the blank. Everyone has one Gospel according. There's even a Gospel according to Starbucks now, and all they do, they all argue that Christianity has this image problem. Rule really, this this like identity crisis is going on in the church and in Christians, and each of them, each of these authors, have a different and new answer to fix it. And they go, here's what we need to do, and this will help believers be more, com- or non-believers be more comfortable, make Christianity more attractive to what we're doing. And so, in an effort to fix the faith, though, which I applaud what they're trying to do, and I'm not trying to speak privately like, I've got it all figured out, but I think James does. And in an effort to fix the faith, here's what I see happening. All kinds of churches, and I think, to be quite frank, We were guilty of this when we first started. And all kinds of churches try very hard to make Jesus cool and relevant in a way to make faith authentic. They use that word a lot. And what happens, though, is they end up, I think, castrating the power of the gospel. They end up demonizing the church. They end up casting doubt into all or parts of God's word. And they end up making Jesus out to be this very loving friend who you can fellowship with without any commitment to. A teacher that you can learn stuff you know, from, but they'll never expect anything from you. That's kind of what has been created. And that's very different than what was believed 2,000 years ago by James. Very different. And by the New Testament church. They knew exactly what they were about, and it was quite simple. They were flat out about Jesus' death and resurrection. If you read the book of Acts, just from the beginning, like go Acts one through like Acts six, you'll see several little sermonettes that come out, and the sermons go something like this: uh, Jesus is Lord. You killed him. He rose from the dead. Confess. Repent and believe. That's it. No creative visuals. No progressive new ideas. Just like uh, you're sinful, rebellious, repent, believe. You're going to die eternally if you don't. And then everybody's believing. Thousands of people believe. They're very simple about what they thought changed people's hearts. It was the Word of God. It was a belief in the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. The resurrection of Jesus changed people. But the curious thing is that there's a lot of people who talk today and say that, you know, people have changed or we've changed in that same sense. But everyone from Oprah to everyone else has used and overused spiritual language so much that you get stuff like this. There are people who claim to be spiritual but not religious because being religious is a bad thing. You get people who are religious but not practicing. You get lovers of Jesus, but not His bride, being the church. You get believers in God, but not in His Word. And you get readers of His Word, but not actually doers of what He says. That's pretty much wraps up all the confusion that I'm beginning to see and feel in Christendom. And James here in this first chapter, he doesn't tell us what it takes to become a servant of the Lord. What he does, rather, is give us a description of what the heart attitudes of a servant of the Lord Jesus will have and what real things they will actually do because there's been a change. And the first chapter, as I said, is foundational for the rest of the letter because he basically says, as pastor of the largest church in Jerusalem, he's writing to believers and he flat out says... A lot of you are faking it. A lot of you are faking it. You don't really love Jesus, though you say you do. And there are a lot of people, and this is nothing for me to judge. It's for the Holy Spirit to judge all of our hearts. The question is, are you faking it? You've got a pretty appearance covering up rottenness inside. Ironically, though, James only mentions the name of Jesus twice. He never quotes Jesus directly, but his ideas are saturated in what Jesus taught. Almost quotes, almost quotes, at least the language he uses, specifically from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. A long sermon. One of our pastors this week, bless his heart, asked me, I said, man, that's a long sermon. I, never, I don't think I ever realized it went Fully five through seven, he said, "Are you going to use that to justify why you preach so long?" And I said, "No, but I think I will now because that's convenient." But at the very end of chapter seven, he says, "Oh, it's like if you have a red letter edition, it'll be like red, 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 red." Then at the end of seven, it's like, "And when he was done teaching, like, dude, that's a long sermon." But in this sermon, it's it's very similar to what James says, and he says Jesus says way harder words than James does. James is like. A puppy dog compared to Jesus, who would be perceived as his bulldog. Let me read what he says in trying to distinguish it just as James does. There are two teams in life believers and non believers. That's it. Here's what he says Jesus speaking in Matthew 7, verse 21. Hard words. Not everyone who says to Me, Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the Kingdom of Heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in Heaven. On that day, mean the day of judgment, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in Your name and do many mighty works in Your name? And then will I declare to them, Jesus will say, I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness but wait, what verse 24 everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them and he continues on to say is like a builder who builds on a rock versus someone who builds on sand that's the end of his sermon after preaching what it looks like to believe so the question is who enters the kingdom of god And the answer, James said last week in verse 21, those who receive the Word of God implanted. Implanted, rooted in their heart. Similar to what Jesus talked about where the sower is sowing seeds and some falls on rocky soil and some falls on good soil. Receives it implanted. The fact is the war against sin, and it is a war. It's a war that rages in our heart that we pretend is not there and it rages out there as well. But the war that rages against our sinful tendencies is waged and won by the Word of God. Our focus is not to be, I'm just not going to sin. I'm just not going to sin. Let me get rid of all this sin. And that's your primary focus, although I think that's an active part of repentance. Our primary focus is to pursue, as James talked about last week, the glory of God in His Word. And the Word of God This, the Word of God is what changes an individual. The Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saves lives, changes hearts, and changes behavior. We don't change our behavior so that we can be accepted. God accepts us, and His Word is received, and He changes our behavior. The power lies in the Word and not in a relationship with someone. The power lies in the Word and not the preacher who speaks it. The power lies in the Word and not the church that proclaims it. The power lies in the Word of God. And those who receive it implanted, James calls doers. Doers. He says in verse 22, Be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. There are those who do God's Word, do, very plain verb here, who do God's Word after they hear it, and those who hear it and do nothing. And it's not that they do nothing, it's that they don't follow God's Word. The term do, the, the verb do, is like the most generic verb you can think of, because you could apply it to any... It's the reason why Nike uses it as their motto. Just do it. Do what? Anything! Right? Whatever it is. So the term do, or the, the word do is applicable to everything. So when James talks about doing God's Word, he's talking about anything that God's Word tells us to do. Well, what does it tell us to do? God's Word tells us to have particular attitudes. It tells us not to do certain things, to run from certain things. It tells us without question how to act. It tells us how to speak. It tells us what lifestyles to live. It tells us a lot. We do a lot of things. And the funny thing is that James doesn't... He could have said anything like, be doers. Be doers. Be a doer. That's a good thing. But he could have said, make sure you do um, really good works for lots of people. Make sure you do relationships really well. But he says, do God's Word. Do God's Word. Live God's Word. And James is drawing, I think, some very stark lines in the sand that if you are a believer in the Gospel, if you are a believer in Jesus, it should, it will, I should say, if you claim to be a believer in Jesus, it will offend you or encourage you. I must say, let me say it this way. If the Word of God If the word of, all the word of God, and we like to kind of go, well just his commandments where he tells us not to sin. No, everything he tells us to do and not to do. All that is God's word. If God's word is not the governing authority in your life. The governing authority that dictates how you perceive the world and how you live in that world. How you interact with others. If it's not the governing authority in your life, you may be a nice person, you may give away millions of dollars to lots of people, but you are not a Christian. A Christian is governed by the Word of God. His desires, though they may go against what God's Word says, they are governed by the Word and he recognizes that they're going against God's Word. God's Word governs our lives so that we are not governed by our intellect. We're not governed by our emotions. We are not governed by our experience. We are governed by the Word of God. And even if you have memorized the entire Bible, got it all implanted in here, you've memorized the Ten Commandments, the books of the Bible, you've been to Awana, and you've been to church for as long as you can remember. you got it all. You can tell someone the road to salvation and everything. If you aren't doing what God's Word says, you're not a Christian, no matter how much you know about God and the Bible. That's what James is talking about. And it it should move us. It should be like, okay, there's doers, and there are those who do not do. And what he's talking about, really, there are those people who obey, and those people who do not. If you guys think about it, well, What's wrong with not doing God's Word? That's called disobedience. If my kid does not do what I've told him to do, he or she has disobeyed. Even if she does nothing, or he does nothing, I'm just neutral. I'm just thinking about it. That's why my obedience in my house is immediate. Here are the rules. Immediate, without complaint, without arguing. Because any of those three broken, you are disobeying. You are disobeying, And so, you think like James, man, he's supposed to be like a pastor. He's supposed to be encouraging. But if we read the Bible, the Bible is in your face challenging, trying to get us to pursue God's glory and not our own. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And we don't test ourselves. And I said this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. We'll test ourselves, but only with tests we can pass. Okay? It says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And I think all of us, myself included, need to really pray something very specific. And that is, Ask the Holy Spirit for a quick check. No one else needs to know. This is between you and the Lord Jesus to honestly examine yourself and ask yourself that day, whether you were four or forty, that moment where you see, I came to believe. The Lord changed my heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and I received and saw the beauty of God's salvation. Okay, that moment, whenever that was, how has your life changed from that moment? What have you done? The do word. What have you done differently? Are you just going through the ritual routines of going to church, of praying, maybe even fasting every now and then, but there's a large chunk of God's Word that in reality, you really don't act out though you know it. You've heard it. You've heard preachers preach on it, but you don't do it. Let me give you a really hard passage. One that will make you feel great. Colossians chapter 3. This is... For whatever reason, this came up this week. It was inspired by one of our pastors for a different situation, and I was just—it—it uh, it, it just was a good passage that I wanted to share with you. Because people ask, they'll get mistaken about. Okay, I'm going to go do God's word. What are the things I got to do? And they'll start making a checklist of things. Well, I got to give. I'm going to give to the church. I've got to pray more. I've got to read my Bible. And they'll start making this list. And there are lists in the Bible. But the lists that the Bible talks about are more attitudes. They speak directly to our character. And I want you to look at all the active verbs in this passage. The verbs that say what we're supposed to do. And if you don't do these things, you are a hearer of the word and not a doer. Which means you're deceiving yourself. And we'll talk about what that means in a second. But Colossians chapter 3 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, only a believer in Jesus would say they have been raised with Jesus. They have been raised to a new life. Their old self is dead. Been crucified on the cross. Buried with Jesus. My sin is gone. I've been raised a new life. Right? Right? I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Alright, now that we have that stage set, let's read Colossians 3 and see what Jesus is telling us to do. This is part of God's Word. Colossians has been in the book for quite a long time. Okay, here we go. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things, first verb, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things on the earth, implying that you can set your minds on the thing of this world. Freak out with your trials and think God has lost control. Which leads us to judge the situation and get angry. Sounds just like James. Continue. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, Awesome verse. Who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Is Christ your life? That sounds so artistic. But is Christ your life? Put to death, verse 5. Okay, great verb. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's things to do. Put to death sexual immorality. Put to death impurity. Put to death passion. Put to death evil desire. Put to death covetousness. Put to death idolatry. What am I supposed to do? Pretty clear. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Past tense. But you've been raised with Jesus and no longer live in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. How do you interpret that? What's obscene talk? You tell me. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self and with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen over time. And the question, like I said before, since you believed, how far have you gotten? How has God changed you? How has He shaped you? And it takes longer for some of us. I understand that. It has nothing to do with you but the grace of God. Continues, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ all in all. Verse 12, put on then, now is the positive, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassion. Are you a compassionate person? Are you more compassionate? Do you cry ever? I've mocked crying for so long and I find as I'm getting older, I cry at everything. I see TV shows coming on about kids being adopted and all these orphans and I'm like, oh my God! I never cried like that before. It's not because I'm trying. No one's even in the room. I cry at the biggest loser. I know that sounds... Silly, but these people, to be quite frank, are struggling with their sin. And I see them get redeemed and people help them. I'm like weeping as their lives, all this stuff breaks down as reasons as why they're in this addiction they have. And I start weeping about it. Yes, I cry, biggest loser. That's on tape. That's great. Humility, meekness, patience. Bearing one with one another again. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must... What are we supposed to do? You are supposed to forgive when someone hurts you. If you do not forgive, you are not doing the very thing God has told you to do, therefore equals sin. But it's really difficult for me to forgive. I understand it's difficult. You still don't have a right not to. You are commanded husbands to love your wives. She's not very lovable right now. Doesn't matter. You love her because God has commanded you to love her and you weren't lovable when Christ died for you. Newsflash. Women. You are to respect your husbands. Well, he doesn't know what he's doing. That's why I don't listen to him. Doesn't matter. It is not to respect him because he deserves it. You are to respect him because God has commanded it. The question is, where's your authority? If it's just your gut and your feeling, good luck. You will walk that path down to sin. Because what that really is describing is your desires. And you saw where the desires of Eve, who was tempted to say, Ooh, I can be like God. This is a better way of life. Led her. And her husband. We are to forgive one another. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ dwell in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Love this three sentence, or sorry, three word sentence, and be thankful. For what? Everything! What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be thankful. You're supposed to recognize that God has given us a beautiful world. That some of you, God has given a spouse. For some of you, God has given children. For some of you, God has given a wonderful blessing of success in whatever job you're in. For some of you, all of you, God has given you breath. We have many things to be thankful for. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, God's wisdom. Where? Singing psalms to one another, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And if He hasn't touched on everything, He gives you a big junk drawer, verse 17. And whatever you do, which is anything, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. So if you're like, Be doers of the of God's word, and not hearers. What does it tell us to do? Do everything to glorify God. And so, as you ask yourself, as you engage in a relationship, as you're in your marriage, as you're in your job, as you're participating in the body of Christ, are you there to glorify God or to glorify yourself? Every decision we make, am I glorifying God here? Am I glorifying myself? When I sit down with marriage counseling. The number one goal for their marriage is to glorify God, period. Not to make her happy, not to make him happy, but to make God pleased as he is glorified, which means neither one of them may be happy once we talk about what is most glorifying. But it will be glorifying. That is what is most important. And those who hear the Word of God and don't obey it, James says they deceive themselves. And the fact is, you're not deceiving anyone else but yourself you're certainly not deceiving God. It's not like God walks around and goes, oh my gosh, I thought that guy was really spiritual. What happened? And it's not like you're fooling anyone else, because here's the fact, we live out what we actually believe despite what we say. If we forgive and we truly believe God has forgiven us, then we do. If you don't forgive, everyone sees it especially the person that you're not. You don't deceive anyone. Everyone can see by our behavior, by what we do, by what we say, what we actually believe about God. And the sad thing is, or the reality check, is that when we disobey God's Word, we'll rarely admit that we're doing it. And we will lie to ourselves about ourselves. We'll lie to ourselves about people. We'll lie to ourselves about God's body, the church. We'll lie to ourselves about God Himself and about our own faith. And we will make elaborate arguments. Romans 1 says this. Romans 1 talks about sin and says that we know the truth. Those who are not believing God's Word and doing God's Word, they know the truth. And it's not that they go, gosh, I didn't know that. They know it and they exchange it for a lie. And they give hearty approval for everyone else who does the same thing. And so the fact is, we create elaborate arguments to justify not why we live the way we do, but why the lie that we know we live is true. That's what we spend our energies on. And James makes it quite clear that it doesn't matter how prosperous or poor your life is, it doesn't matter how many friends that you have or don't have, It doesn't matter how painful or painless your life is. It doesn't matter how satisfied your desires are. What matters is if what you are doing aligns with the Word of God. Period. And what is at stake is, I think, whether or not you truly love the God of Scripture. Whether you truly love the God of Scripture with His church, with His rules, with His commands, with His promises, and with His ways? Are you truly willing and desirous of submitting to the authority of God and His Word in your life who is both loving and wrathful? Because if not, you don't really love God. 1 John, don't listen to me, listen to the Word of God. 1 John 5.2 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And then James continues on. He gives an illustration of a guy in a mirror about those who just hear and those who hear and do. And he says in verse 23 For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, we love mirrors. I have a little daughter. She'll be four tomorrow. She is the princess of princes. She's about as girly as a girl can get. I was kind of afraid because... I'm just like, try to be like hyper manly, right? That my daughter was going to come out and be like, Hey dad, I love you. And kind of be like, you know, like a tough girl. And she's pretty tough. She can, she can handle her own. But she is girly as can be. So we've got mirrors in our house, obviously. And we have a staircase. And as you come down the staircase, it's like a, like there's two sections to it, whatever. And there's a little platform here. And a couple more steps to the floor. And there's a mirror right there. Okay. And so I've watched her before. She'll come down the steps. She wears like 15 dresses a day, okay? She comes down the steps and she's all dolled up and she will, without fault, every time, she could be in her pajamas, doesn't matter, she'll come down and pause and look and check herself out, right? And I don't know where she gets this, my wife doesn't do this, it's just, you know, what she does. And so, it doesn't matter, when I come home, my kids are excited, mom, dad, and they're excited to see me. My boys, they'll, they'll just run and they'll punch me typically. But she will be excited. Daddy, she'll run down. It just oh, it melts your heart. But she will run down the steps. And when she gets to that, I could be like right in front of her. And she'll go, hey, Dad. And she'll look for a moment. She will catch herself looking, right? It's hilarious. But we lo- our, it's our culture. We love mirrors. I was count- we have like five mirrors in our house. That some of them you can't even look at, right? You got mirror here, mirror here. We got mirrors in our bathrooms. Huge ones. Mirrors on the counter, little mirrors in our purse and like in drawers and stuff. You go to the gym, mirrors everywhere. And I, there's like a psychological thing where like, I think guys think they lift more, but then you see them without weights at all in front of the mirror, and you're like, you know, it's like, come on, it's just ridiculous. We're just enamored with ourselves, right? We got mirrors in our car. Not the mirrors to see special vanity mirrors. Okay, So you can look. But we look at mirrors so often. I think with the the regularity that we look at mirrors, it's pretty indicative that we forget what we see pretty quick. Because we're always checking ourselves out, always looking. And we, we look to see what, I mean, how it's going. What's the state of the union right now? And we get a picture of ourselves, good or bad. We typically are going to try to remove any blemishes and make any minor improvements because the major ones just cost too much, and then admire either the beauty or cry for the lack thereof, right? Like, oh. And so, the funny thing is, though, in the first century, mirrors were a little bit different. So when he talks about a mirror, he's talking about a piece of metal that had to be polished regularly. And even if it was polished every day, it's not going to look as clear as the mirrors we have. And they weren't hung on the wall. They were laid horizontally on a table. And in order to see it, you would have to really, you know, look over and look down to see how you looked. And it took a lot of effort to see the State of the Union. And my guess is the first century man in this respect was not much different than 21st century man in that I highly doubt he took a long gaze at himself. I think James uses men here particularly because men, when we look at the mirror We pretty much assume everything is fine. That's why we don't look at the mirror that often. We just kind of go, I looked at myself yesterday, pretty sure I look exactly the same. And if I don't, I really don't care. So we glance at the mirror and we take typically a routine look because it's just routine. It's not something we want to do. Unlike women, nothing bad. This is just how women are. They will study it for hours. And they will look, and there will be stuff that they see that you could never have seen if you'd used a microscope on their face, right? She'd be like, can you see that gray hair? And you're like, no. You know, I don't see it. And and she might be talking about you, and then you're like, look at here. And she's like, look, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. They're everywhere. Like, okay. She'll know that if her face just slowly moves just a millimeter over a day, a little bit of swelling, there's some puffiness there. I mean, whatever. She could have... Every little detail she's studying. But a guy, he walks out, and I'll speak for myself, I walk out, here, good, alright, let's move. And that's it. You walk out and your wife's like, whoa, what, did you look in the mirror? Yes, I did, actually. What's wrong? You don't get it. You this, uh, Your collar's like bent over, you got unbuttons everywhere, you know, and she's like, but the worst thing is a guy will walk out, and, and it's a little embarrassing, but Really not. It's like, who really cares? But I'll pick up a shirt, put it on, and I'll walk out and she'll say, Oh my Lord, why are you wearing that shirt? And so at first you're thinking it's a fashion thing, right? Because that's just, you never satisfy fashion for your bride. And so I go, Well, I just picked up the shirt. I thought it looked nice with these pants, you know, whatever. She's like, No, no, no. Do you not see the five stains on that shirt? I really did not see the five stains. Right there, I still don't see them. Okay? I, but they are there, and you are just blind to it, because we, we don't, guys just don't study themselves. They're blind to what they don't even know is there. Okay? And they'll walk out and make fools of themselves. Walk I've gotten home before. My fly is down. Wife's like, did you walk around like, well, I didn't go to the bathroom today, so yes, I guess I walked all day like this. And she'll say like, that's like trauma to her. I'm like, hey, what up what no big deal. Because guys don't care. Physically, no big deal, right? Physically, maybe a little embarrassing. Maybe people talk about you. Maybe you preach on it. Big deal. But spiritually, huge deal. Huge deal spiritually. And James tries to say, look, here's the analogy. Yeah, we look at mirrors all the time and we forget all the time what we look like. Spiritually, we have a tendency to do the same thing. And Scripture, the Bible, is supposed to be a mirror into our soul. It's supposed to show us what we really look like. Not what we think we look like. What we truly look like. And we look into Scripture, or supposed to, for a true picture of ourselves spiritually, or what maybe we should be. Not only does it disclose our sin, not only does it show us where we need to repent, not only does it show us, let's be frank, how ugly we are. Scripture, if you read it, will show you that you are ugly. If there's anyone in here who is perfect, who has never sinned, who doesn't have any struggle with anything, whether it be pride or an addiction, I guess this doesn't apply to you. Anyone else that has ever sinned, that has ever had a weakness or a struggle, where you know you're not... This is what the Scripture shows us. It shows us this is not who you're supposed to be. You've got a blemish here. You've got a problem here. But if Scripture only showed us ugliness, I would never want to look at it. But I don't want to go like, oh my gosh, you know? That's why I don't look at it. This is ugly. Okay? But the beauty of Scripture is not only does it show us our sin, not only does it show us we're ugly, it also declares how much God loves us and how much grace He shows. And we either do one or the other, I think, but we're supposed to see all of it. And the one who truly hears the Word of God, as James talks about, looks into that mirror deeply, and constantly recognizing who they are and who they're supposed to be in Jesus. And he calls it the law of liberty. We're supposed to never take our eyes off the cross because the cross does two things. It shows you, the cross of Jesus shows you how ugly you are, uglier than you would ever admit. But it also shows you how much God loves you more than you could ever imagine. We kind of look at law, law of liberty. It seems like they're at odds, like law, liberty, rules, freedom. But here's the, the big deception. And it's the same deception that was in the Garden of Eden. Satan told Adam and Eve, particularly Eve, that God has withheld this from you because there's something better. God knows. He's lying to you. His word is wrong, is what he flat out was saying. And we believe the exact same lies. We actually believe that God's Word is restrictive. We believe God's rules are bondage when the truth of the matter is God's Word, His loving Word from a Father, not the authoritarian boss, from a loving Father is always meant for freedom and meant for joy. The cross brings freedom and joy Disobedience to God's Word, sin, brings bondage. It brings bondage, and eventually, as James taught, it brings death. In the midst of trials, we will endure if we trust that the blessing, despite how things seem, will come through following God's Word. Even and especially when it conflicts with our desires and what we think. And some of us refuse to look at the mirror at all. Because one guy kind of glances at it real quick, like once a week on Sunday morning, glances at it. One person where we're supposed to be constantly studying it, even if it's difficult to look at. One person doesn't look at it at all. I think they don't look for two reasons, either pride or shame. They don't look in the mirror. They don't want to look in there because they really don't think anything's wrong with them. They actually deny, like the guy does, that he's dirty, Well, there's any blemishes, and just kind of, well, I'm fine. I don't need to look at that. I've got it all together. When the truth of the matter is, he doesn't. And the thing about it is that it's not that he doesn't look at anything. Instead of looking at God's mirror, he looks at everyone else. He begins to look out around him, and he compares himself to the other ugly people, or the good-looking people, as he deems them doesn't look at the truth. He's like, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm much prettier than him. So he feels good about himself, even if they're both ugly. But since I'm better, I don't need to look. That's pride. The other is shame, which I think is even more despairing. Where people are afraid, like Adam and Eve were, to actually encounter God, and they hide in the bushes. Thinking God doesn't know what they've done. Thinking that I'm too ugly for God to love me. It's a lie of the devil. It's a lie of the devil. Jesus died while we were sinners. He didn't wait for us to look pretty. We were going to put a sign out, they have that uh, big festival that the church has put together, and we were going to put a sign out that simply handed people out little those wax teeth, They're like actually not white, they're like really ugly teeth, and a big sign that says, Jesus loves ugly people. That's it. We thought it'd be confusing though. So we didn't. Okay? But that's the reality is that one of them denies that they're sinful, the prideful person, and one denies the love of God and the grace that's there. And they're both there. And we have to be honest about that. Because the gospel basically, as Jesus says, I know you're ugly. And I love you. In fact, you're so ugly, you should be shot. So I'll shoot my son instead. It's what he does. The cross shows that he does think sin is the most disgusting thing. So disgusting that he sends his son to die. Even for the little ones. Last verses. Verses 26 through 27. He closes patches passages telling us, Okay, if I'm not going to give you a list of things to do, he's like, I'll give you the basics. John Calvin said it this way, James does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. He's not giving you everything, but he's giving you this is the core. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, as I said earlier, many people consider themselves religious. They'll even use that term or not, but they know what it means. And James, you've got to remember, writes to largely a Jewish audience. And the the term for religious here, the word for religious, actually talks about the ceremonial external things and disciplines that the Jew in his culture would be very familiar with. Because it was a very ritualistic and ceremonial culture. Now we often use religion in a negative sense, like, well, you're just being religious. But I don't think James is is saying that. There are good rituals. But what he's talking about is the hollowness of the ritual. The going through the motions thing. Because these guys he's writing to are going through certain ceremonial motions. But he's trying to talk about the heart. He's trying to talk against the pharisaical, the Pharisee mentality of loving with your lips, but not your heart. And so he says specifically, people can attend church, read their Bibles, they can memorize all kinds of stuff, they can serve, they can do all kinds of things, and still not love Jesus. And so, he says three things. He's like, if I'm, going to just, if I'm just going to summarize it, he's like, I'm going to give you three things. And the first thing, he says, is you need to bridle your tongue. Anyone who fails, and James speaks about this more than anyone, but anyone who fails to keep their tongue in check has a faith that's worthless. And that comes out in different ways. Lies, slander, pride, as you just want to, you know, talk over people. Speaking lies about church, about God, it's the very thing that he'd said, be slow to speak. Slow to judge. And he doesn't say we're to be silent. He says you need to bridle it like a horse. You need to control it. In other words, the tongue can be the most powerful tool there is to the glory of God, and it can be the most destructive there is. And all of us have probably experienced that with someone. The fact is, it's not enough not to speak lies. We have to speak Truth. We have to speak truth about ourselves, truth about God's bride, truth about the community, truth to each other, even if it's hard truth. And these truths aren't opinions based off our wisdom. These truths come from God's Word. We should be being led and driven in our conversation, whether it be rebuke or encouragement, with God's Word. We are to speak truth and allow God's Word to speak for us rather than speaking for God's Word. I think it's so important for us to just use Scripture for all, I use it in the parenting of my children, I use it in debates with my wife, I use it all the time, right? You should always use Scripture for encouragement, because you can get all kinds of wisdom from the world, but you cannot get wisdom that will transform your heart, change your desires, and have you see things completely differently in conflict with your desires. We are to speak and bridle our tongue so that it speaks truthfully. That's, our, that's one of our core values of our church, speaking gospel truth, which includes speaking about sin. The second thing he says is to care for those in need. Particularly, he says, he admonishes the believers to take care of the orphans and the widows. Take care and God has always been about protecting the orphans and the widows. And the orphans and the widows is a very good way of describing anyone who cannot protect and provide for themselves. Specifically orphans and widows, but there's also single moms, there's homeless teens, there's a lot more you can add to that. And there are ways to do that as a church. As a church, we are supporting what is happening in Africa because we can't do it with our own hands, but we can do it other ways. We can do it with our prayers. We can do with our money. We're supporting guys in India doing the same thing. Helping orphans. If we did not fund the orphans, many of them would not even eat. We are helping get rid of malaria. This church sent like, I don't know what it was, but it was some amount. We just paid to ship medicine. They didn't have money to ship medicine. So we paid to ship medicine. We are responsible to take care of who we can take care of. And that doesn't mean that we go and find every single orphan, every single widow we can, although I don't think it would be a bad thing if we did. It's not like we're really trying hard, if let's be real, about that. A lot of us sit back and wait for the church to do everything. We sit back and we write our check and we pray and we're like, okay, I think my church is doing something with orphans and widows, I'm not sure though. And that's how we kind of deal with not doing God's Word. Here's the reality. And and supporting orphans and widows and very practical purposes through Agathos and through pilgrim ministries like that that we're connected with, that is necessary and we need that. By the grace of God, we will do God-glorifying work through them. But there are a lot of people in need who are abandoned, who come across your path every day. Some are in your family, some are in the neighborhoods you live in right now. Have you even inquired to see how many people in your neighborhood have lost their jobs? There are people in this church who don't have work, who would love to just be invited over for a meal. There are people, homeless teens that come to our services here, take packets of tea and jam them in their pants. So they can have something. and we say nothing, stop taking our tea. Take it. Take boxes of it. Clearly, if you have to take it, you need it more than us. There are people that come across our path all the time. And the question is, are we providing for them? Let me read you a verse that's going to cut to the quick. First John 3 says it this way, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, Reminder, the infinite God of the universe came and humbled Himself as a man to death for people who didn't love Him. He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17, But if anyone, in Greek, I think that means anyone, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? That should be convicting for every one of us who spend more on our cable and our phone bill than we do helping anybody. And I know a lot of us are helping a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking to you. In fact, I'm not speaking to anyone. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But we spend a tremendous amount... Of, we waste a tremendous amount of money. I've been blown away by this economy because there have been people I've interacted with are like, gosh... You know, we're making half as much as we did and we're okay. The question is, when you make more next, when you do you know, work again, how does your life change now that you've realized that? Now that you've realized how much money you've been spending on stuff you probably didn't need, where could you honor God with that? Whether that be inviting someone over for dinner or making sure that malaria is wiped out in Africa. All those opportunities exist. The last thing he says, not only brighter your tongue, gospel truth, not only live out the gospel practically, but he also says, very particularly, be unstained from the world. We are to keep ourselves from the sin of the world. The world is that part of humanity that's trying to accomplish all these good things by human means without reference to God's word or God at all. The world is anything and everything that is at odds with the Lordship of Jesus, whether that be in lifestyles, whether it be in education, whether it be in your job, wherever that is. It's anything that's at odds with the Lordship of Jesus. And I believe that we accomplish this by living in a gospel kingdom community together. We don't. Separate from the world and go, hey, we're gonna live away from you and never talk to you. We live as a God glorifying community within the world right here. A city on the hill that you can see and is still accessible. We are to be God, we don't create God's kingdom. We don't usher in God's kingdom by how we live. God's kingdom reigns and we are to live as if that's true. That's doing God's word. And I think a lot of us, some of us, adopt this social gospel only where I'm just going to feed everybody and that's it. That is hugely important and we have responsibility for that. But if you give someone a pair of shoes, if you feed them and you never tell them about the lordship of Jesus and the need for a savior, you're not doing them any good. You're sending them to hell with a nice pair of shoes on, and a little bit warmer and a fuller stomach. Our primary mission to live unstained from the world is to live according to God's Word. If you ever read the passage where Jesus, and I think it's in, well, it's in John, as He feeds the 5,000, Okay, He feeds the 5,000, which is feeding people who cannot care for themselves, they follow Him. He leaves. He feeds them. They follow Him. And He goes across the lake and they all come around and run like lake to meet Him. And He speaks to them. And they're like, tell us what we can do to do the works of God. Tell us. And He's like, you know, you guys are just following Me not because you love Me, but because I fed you. I know that's why you're here. Because you saw these signs and wonders. And they say, how can we work the works of God? And it's interesting to see what Jesus doesn't tell them what He does. He doesn't say... Go do XYZ. He simply says, This is the work of God. This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. Our best thing we could do for the world. The best thing we could do is not, I'm just not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. The best thing to do is pursue God's glory and to tell other people about it. We want to live like Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Love people in the name of Jesus. But call people to renounce the rebellion against Jesus. That's primary. That should drive everything we do. Drive our relationships, not in a mean way, but in a declarative way to say, Jesus is Lord and everyone needs to be ready to meet the King when He arrives. Period. The Gospel is the most important thing. We are to bridle our tongues by speaking the truth of the Gospel. We are to help those in need by living out the Gospel. In other words, we recognize and believe the Gospel, that God gave up everything to be with us, so we're going to give everything out and love as we've been loved. And then we're going to live a sinless life. Yes, I'm going to fight against sin. But the best way to fight against sin is to look at that mirror every day and say, I recognize I am weak. I recognize I am ugly. But by God's grace, you have made me beautiful. And I will live in such a way as if I am a child of God, not in bondage to sin, but in victory under the king and the citizen of a beautiful kingdom. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. We don't celebrate, oh, I'm glad Jesus died and move on with our day. We celebrate the fact, and anyone who comes up here should be declaring this or know that you're declaring this. You lift that bread, which is Jesus' body broken for you, and you dip it in the cup, which is Jesus' blood shed for you, to say, I am sinful, and so something had to be broken, and yet His blood cleanses me, and I live under His Lordship. Please, by the grace of God, be a doer, not a hearer, who is deceiving yourself. A doer of God's Word, believes first and foremost in the Gospel, and that belief impacts everything that they do. Let's pray. Father, I praise You for the love that You have poured out to an undeserving people. You have given us Your Word And You have given us Your rules and Your commands. And they are not burdensome, Lord, because they are coming from a Father who loves us. I pray that our hearts will be changed. That You will empower us to not make lies to ourselves about who we are in Jesus, who others are. But will live in such a way that we truly believe You are Savior and that You are Lord. Father, use our tongues as tools to proclaim Your truth. Truth to one another. Truth of rebuke. Truth of encouragement. Father, use everything that we have, all of our means, our hands, our feet, our minds, our giftings, our passions, to glorify You and especially to love those whom You love, those who cannot protect and support themselves. And Father, I pray that You will help us to live God-glorifying lives apart from but within the world. Help us to live in such a way that people see that we truly believe in the kingdom. That we truly are members of the family of God, fellow citizens, in a kingdom where You reign. Your Son's blood the only way we can approach You, we pray. Amen.